0: Welcome to the Marvel Events Timeline, the podcast that takes you
1: on a journey through Timely, Atlas, and Marvel Comics, one event at a time. Here are your hosts, Travis Bowe and Brian Lockhart. Welcome back to Marvel Events Timeline, the podcast that takes you through the timely Atlas and Marvel comic universe, one event at a time. My name's Travis. And my name's Brian Lockhart. Welcome, sir. Welcome. <laughs>
0: well, it's good Welcome to be to here. Welcome your, to your show. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's, it's good to be a guest. Yeah, yeah. Or a co-host, whatever. <laughs> you know, we're, we're still ironing out the kinks, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get it someday. Yeah. hundred episodes later.
1: And then we cancel the show. Just when we started coming together. <laughs> <laughs> so what are we here to do today, uh, Travis? Uh, well, we're going to talk about some people who may have had something to do with the creation of one Captain America.
0: You're talking my language here, or my love language, if you will, because you know Captain America is one of my top characters, so I would love to discuss more about his creation. Absolutely. Or at least the people behind creating.
1: Yeah, yeah. We're both big fans of Captain America, so... It's been fun for me to, like, go way back, you know. I've never—not that we're talking about Captain America number one on this episode. That comes next episode, but I'd never read that issue. So it was fun to do all this uh, prep and and actually dive into that issue.
0: Yeah, but before we do that, it's a good idea to talk about the guys who— had a hand in creating Captain America, since you know we've we've done that already with some of the other early Timely characters like Human Torch and Submariner, where we did that in one episode. These guys have had much further reach <laughs> into the comic book uh, industry, so it just it, it made sense to just kind of go ahead and and give them their own episode and just learn a little bit more about the men behind Captain America. Absolutely. So who who, who are these men? <laughs> I don't even think we've said it. You know. <laughs>
1: Well, uh, I'm going to talk about um, Jack Kirby. Uh, uh, Travis? Um, yeah? I did
0: my research on Jaime Simon. Who? Jaime Simon, the guy that helped create Captain America. And his co-creator, as far as I understood, is Jacob Kurtzberg. All my notes don't say anything about Kirby.
1: You you were talking about Captain America, right? Not the shield? No,
0: no. The, you know, the man with the plan. The guy who throws his mighty shield.
1: <laughs> Star-spangled man with a plan? You know what? Don't worry about it. Let's just press through. I, I'm sure it'll be fine. We'll we'll figure it out. We'll we'll edit it together. Make it all yeah. Fix it. Makes sense. Sounds good. Yeah.
0: You know what do you say? I, I dive in first, and we'll talk about uh, Jaime Simon.
1: Absolutely. I'd love to learn about this this yeah. character.
0: <laughs> this new new unheard of creator that we <laughs>
1: this young this young kid
0: is he's an up and comer for sure. What? No. Actually, you know what we're here to talk about is Joe Simon and Jack Kirby. I wanted to dive into Joe Simon's history, partly because I've learned fairly recently, I, I think a couple years ago, I may have mentioned this before, I did a like a panel at a local Comic-Con about veteran comic creators. And when I mean veterans, I don't mean comic creators who've been in the industry for a while. I mean comic creators who actually went off to war or served in the military. In this research, I found out that Joe Simon was from my hometown. So I was like, I want, I want to discuss him, <laughs> and I will do my best to uh, not reference all the minutia of <laughs> Rochester, New York, <laughs> because uh, what I, what I did, what I did instead of, instead of just trying to find articles or, or or whatever about Joe Simon or or whatever, I actually got his autobiography. It was Joe Simon: uh, Life in Comics, or I believe it was called. He spoke it and it was transcribed because he was like 98 years old. Right. To me, it's really fascinating. It's a really good, um, easy read. I didn't finish it. I did cut myself off so that I can finish it later (laughs) Uh, because there's always so much research you can do. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, uh, this guy, I mean, to me, it's fascinating. Like I said, it's a little bit because he's from my hometown. I can relate to a lot of his childhood and I just found it really fascinating to focus in on. Hey, I know where he's talking about, and I'll throw in a few examples here and there. Oh, sure,
1: that's <laughs> a good feeling when you find out so and so is from from where you grew up. There's, yeah, I, I get that same feeling with finding out someone is from here or whatever. Now I'm gonna, you know, plug my own show for a minute. I had Peacock, uh,
0: one of the star, well, star, you know, one of the actors in Heartbreak Ridge. <laughs> he was one of the one of the recon marines and i had found out before he came on that actually he used to have a um a a, a gym in my area you know in, in where i live now <laughs> at one point i was like hey so you know yeah. that we, we got the chit chat about that off you know off the record and that was just really kind of neat but we're not here to talk about marines or heartbreak ridge or any of that stuff we're here to talk about, <laughs> about joe simon so Joe Simon, um, he was, as I've stated, a Rochester, New York native, and he basically was a son of immigrants. You know, like like many uh, of the time, his father came over from he was from Leeds, England, and I think he came over in 1905. And, you know, because you know Simon was you know 100 years old when he almost 100 years old when he passed. Sure. away. and his mom was uh, named Rose. Now, he has a little antidote in the, in the book that he never knew his mother's maiden name. In fact, he even mentioned that when he had to do a security thing for like a bank load, he just made it
1: up. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Kirby. <laughs> and, well, there's a lot of that going
0: on as I'll, as I'll get to uh, <laughs> as we go through. But uh, I did see somewhere that his, his mother's last name was Curlin. You know, his father was from England. His mother apparently was a Jewish Russian co- Cossack. Uh, although Simon did mention that nobody believed that they were actually Cossacks, none of them thought that there was actually Jewish Cossacks, because <laughs> I just hmm. they found that interesting. So they, you know, they were Jewish immigrants, yeah. and his father was a tailor. His mother worked also at a, at a, um, a clothing factory for a time, and apparently, I didn't know this because I always know Rochester for, for Kodak film and stuff like that. Oh, okay you know, and Wegmans too. Everybody loves Wegmans. But, but, you know, back then it was all Kodak and there was, there was, you know, there was some, you know, good industries there, but it apparently was a big clothing factory area.
1: That is a line of work that just, it it keeps coming up. There's some of that with, with Jack Kirby. And I know with uh, Stan Lee, who we'll talk about eventually, like their, their parents both also were in the textiles and garments and, and that sort of thing.
0: That was one of the things that, you know, kind of a side note that Simon mentioned was that he goes, it seemed like all of us were sons of tailors, <laughs> And he specifically mentioned mm. Kirby Eisner. And he said Jerry Siegel was the son of a haberdasher, you know, so it's all related, you know.
1: Oh, <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
0: But we almost didn't get to meet Joe Simon. We almost didn't have the Joe, <laughs> Joe Simon. I found this very interesting story that he, he highlights very early in the book, obviously, because we're talking about his, his history. So his... His parents, um, he, his sister Beatrice was born in 1912, and at the time, his mother Rose was working at a clothing factory. And nine months later, she's pregnant again. Now, they didn't have a lot of money. Um, his dad kind of got in trouble with some union activity, so he was basically working. Uh, mm. So he was no longer working at in factories. He opened up his own tailor shop, kind of out of their house. <laughs> their their front living room was yeah. basically their their place. So the mother was very worried about you know, having a second baby, financial, you know, all that, all the sure. stuff, right? And she had a cousin who owned a pharmacy, actually in a very near where my grandparents used to live, <laughs> and and he had a drugstore, and he was the pharmacist, so she said, hey, we got to get rid of this baby, and he said, don't worry, I'll take care of it, and he proceeded to prescribe her with a couple of aspirin, so, you know, hmm. nine months later, on October 11, 1913, <laughs> um, <laughs> Joe Simon was born, so... <laughs> He he didn't get into the whole like oh they were all so relieved or whatever. He just said he goes I can totally understand why my yeah. mom felt that way and he felt no <laughs> ill will or anything like that. <laughs> yeah, goes, yeah. It's a kind of a funny story I thought, and it's like man we came <laughs> that close to not having Joe Simon, which means no Captain America.
1: <laughs> so, wow.
0: But from there he just he goes on to talk a little bit about his his life. So so his okay his name. His name is Joe Simon, and I mentioned his mother was, you know, Russian Cossack or whatever. She had a brother Joseph who died and got trampled by a horse. Apparently, fell off a horse, got trampled. So she wanted to name her son. Yeah, I know. I mean, it seems like everybody back then, like everything was horrible, and you could die so easily, and (laughs) everyone was was getting kicked in the heads by horses. It's terrible. Yeah. Dennis Leary has <laughs> right. a whole bit about that in one of his books about his mom talking about, you know, half her siblings died from like falling off in wells and stuff like that. Yeah, so I mean everything's yeah. terrible back then. But the mother wanted <laughs> to honor the brother and name him Joseph. However, the dad got a hold of, <laughs> the, the dad got a hold of the um, birth certificate and put the name Jaime on it. So his official birth name is mm. Jaime Simon. The mother rose flipped out when she saw that. <laughs> and she refused to call him Jaime. She, in fact, there's another little bit in the book uh, how he said she, she at least would have understood if it was Hyman and Simon, because at least it would have rhymed. But <laughs> she's like, so she just nice. called him Joe. Yeah. So his, his name was Joe. It was never changed on the birth certificate. So that's his official given name. But he was always Joe. In fact... He talks about how he really—they were so poor they couldn't afford middle names back then, (laughs) so he just gave himself the name, you know, Joseph H. Simons, and so his it was Henry, and he took that from Jaime. So, but but it's not on his birth certificate. It's nobody gave it to him. He just started putting it down. (laughs) So, yeah. But, you know, that was also very common practice back then, too, for people to change their names, as we'll see. Some other people may have used sure. their name a time or two. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. Several times. <laughs> but, yeah, so that's, you know, he was always just Joe. So his family was poor even before the Depression. Uh, they moved around about a lot as a kid. I mean, he said, in fact, one time he even describes they're almost kind of borderline homeless. They always had people to stay with. Uh, In fact, when he was 10 years old, they moved to Chicago for a year, but then they ended up moving back to Rochester because of, you know, tailoring work. But they just they just didn't have a lot of money. But he says despite all that, he always had a happy childhood. Mm-hmm. You know, but you know, obviously as as soon as he was of age to be able to contribute to the um, financial <laughs> assistance to you know to the family, he he ended up going out and got getting uh, selling newspapers. You know, I want I could I, I want to say he sure. had a paper route, but it's it wasn't the same back then. <laughs> yeah, you know right, they would yeah. meet at a coffee shop, get a donut, get their papers, and then they go spread out about town like the newsboys. As a matter of fact, his experience uh, doing that, you know, would lead him to go on to create, I believe with Kirby, the Newsboys Legion for DC Comics. Uh, oh, okay. But, but now we're going to talk about some personal stuff here. So he lived about a block, block and a half from the bauchan & factory, the bauchan & building. And my okay. grandfather worked there. He used to go into the, you know, Simon used to go in the lobby and sell directly <laughs> to all the workers in their lobby. Yeah, I thought oh, it was wow. cool. And of course, I'm like, jeez, oh, I I, we used to pass by that going to my grandparents' house all the time. When I relay that story to my parents, they're like, hey, I wonder if your grandfather ever bought a paper from him. I'm like, I doubt it since he was like seven years younger than him. <laughs> 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 so yeah, I don't think that happened. <laughs> Yeah,
1: I was thinking the same thing. I was like, "Oh, I guarantee your grandfather must have bought a <laughs> <don't> paper really. <laughs> from, from Joe Simon." I mean,
0: if anything, he was he um, would have been a, you know the, one of the uh, punk kids hanging around, being like, "Hey, get out of here, you little kid." Yeah. <laughs> Going into his teens, he was a tall guy, six six three, real skinny though. But he loved playing sports. He said mm-hmm. he loved the ladies, but he was real shy. Uh, in fact, he said he used to hang out at the library because not only did he like to look uh, the books, but it, <laughs> look. <laughs> it has a forty and slip. <laughs> He said all the pretty ladies were there, you know, so he would, he would go hang out there. Yeah. I, I only going to mention this cause you know, I don't want to get into anything too heavy, but you know, he was Jewish and he does mention in his book that, yeah. you know, he was aware of some anti-Semitism. you know, that. Was around Uh, a lot of it. He he mentioned was kind of more under the surface stuff like, "Hey, you don't move to our neighborhood, we won't move to yours." Yeah, but but I mean, honestly, I mean, coming from Rochester, especially back then, I mean, that was true for any denomination. It was like, in Mm -hmm. fact, I'm going to there I go with personal stuff. My my great grandfather was like did bare knuckle boxing, and they would literally have fights among the neighborhoods like my neighborhood's better than yours <laughs> you know like and they were like some not quite mm. semi-pro they were very amateur boxing matches but that was like yeah. a thing it was like a tough guy match amongst you know oh i'm from the 19th ward you're from the 13th ward well let's fight you know uh, <laughs> but it was yeah. more organized right. it wasn't like a rumble you know it was actually boxing matches okay. but anyways that's sure. neither here nor here because th- what i'm saying yeah. is a little different because like oh like a realtor would say you wouldn't like it here. Well, that's cold for. You're not welcome right. here, you know, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. And he brings up a story later Man. about um like Syracuse University that they only at the time only let a certain number of Jewish kids in it, you know. So they they let him in, but it was huh. limited. So stuff like that. I mean, like I said, it it was there. Okay. He was aware of it. But this is this is yeah. now this is why I bring it up is he said despite all that though, he said he had a tremendous respect and patriotism and pride in his country. I mean in fact he literally said I had a tremendous respect for patriotism and pride in my country. Like those were his words. And he's like yeah. in his mind the USA was the greatest country ever and these were the greatest people ever. And he's like and and basically he kind of wrapped up this little story with some of them didn't like us. Well that's no problem on me. Like so what. You know like obviously it's a problem but he didn't let that affect his love and patriotism for the country basically those people yeah. are scum I'm not gonna let it ruin me you know that type of thing and and, and that right. that right there that him talking about the patriotism and all that kind of lends you to where we're you know where he's going you know maybe 10 15 sure. years from now you know like when we get there like captain America
1: some some values yeah that uh, will be familiar yeah I mean there was a story in the beginning of the book too when he was like
0: in, in elementary school a Union soldier who fought in the Civil War in full Union attire came in and did, like, a speech for them. They said, the guy was a little weird, but it was like, to him, it was like seeing a superhero, <laughs> you know? And, and yeah. again, that's huh. that's the patriotism coming through. And and the, yeah. again, the the soldier in his uniform coming through. Jeez, do you think that's going to matter later? <laughs> right,
1: yeah. Man, that's such an odd notion that he was, at one point, you know, young enough to that a Civil War soldier could come into a school. And I mean, that seems so weird to think about Civil War soldiers living into the 19th, you know, into the 1900s. It
0: it is funny, but what you got to think about, it it was only about what maybe, you know, he was born in 1913, the the war ended in 1865. Yeah. So, you know, it's, you know, 40, 50 years later, you know, 45, 50 years later.
1: Yeah. it would be old, but yeah, yeah. I mean, if, if that soldier was, you know, 18, 19, 20 years old, you know, he'd, he'd easily be alive in the 19, you know, 1915s or whatever. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But it, it is. It's like because Joe Simon being born over 100 years ago at this point is so far away that it's hard to imagine that Well, for him, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that was, you know, that was like seeing a grandparent, basically.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. A, it's just yeah. crazy.
0: Uh, but it's, it's stuff like that is what really kind of drew me into the book. Like I said, I mean, you you know. Oh, Baoxialang—that's you know my grandpa, my grandfather worked there. You know, like that stuff's great too. But back to Joe. As a kid, he was an avid reader. He was big into Mark Twain, Tarzan books. Uh, he really liked those. Uh, he read a series called The Boy Allies, um, It was set during World War One. And he read a lot of the um, Daily like comic you know the funny they call them funnies back then the stuff that printed in the newspaper right he, sp- he called out a few of them that he liked like the gomps gasoline alley mutton jeff you know the, the prince valiant those, those things he's uh, he, sure. he said he was not a big fan of dick tracy though because it was too cartoony for him wasn't like realistic enough funny though he would go <laughs> on to do some covers for yeah. the reprints of those very um, funnies in uh, harvey when he worked at harvey comics Oh, Okay. Oh, uh, this is something I found funny because of our history with movies by minutes podcasting. There is uh, one of his favorite strips was something called Minute Movies. <laughs> I'm like, oh, did they? Does he huh, break down the nice. local, you know, the movies uh, <laughs> one minute right. at a time? <laughs> no, but apparently it was um it was a, a a strip in the paper that parodied films of the time. But it, it would take several days to complete instead of just being like a one and done story, you know, three panels and then, you know, get the next one the next day. It would go on as long as they needed, usually a couple of days, and then a new story would start again. And he kind of compared it to what comic books would become eventually. It was like a precursor to it. So I think that's funny that he kind of was drawn to that one. Yeah. As far as uh, his getting into drawing, he, he really doesn't know exactly when that became a passion of his but he recalls in eighth grade no, not in eighth grade, when he was eight, he would go from classroom to classroom and draw Santa Claus on all the chalkboards at school in, in color <laughs> in color chalk. And that and he said it and at some point He just started doing doodles and little drawings of like cowboys and just random stuff, and he was you know quite the entrepreneur. He would start selling them for a penny or two, (laughs) you (laughs) know. And he did say (laughs) that his father encouraged him to you know to do what do his art and do you know just experiment or whatever. His mom not so much because she didn't think he could make you know.
1: In those times, I think it would be tough as a parent to nurture your kids' hobbies because it's such if, if it's taking time away from get a job and help the family i I could understand not encouraging that that kind of uh you know as we
0: learn there will become a marketplace for those skills but it's probably few and far between especially to in their mind a son of an immigrant jewish people who are poor that just can't you know they there's not all they know is go get a job (laughs) go out and get work you know like you can totally see that and you know like i said like nowadays we have the luxury to pursue passions i mean you know our life is so
1: much we're on a podcast right now
0: (laughs) (laughs) exactly yeah you know there's luxuries that 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 these guys were not afforded especially you know as he's getting older um going you know it's the great depression you you know and it's and but like i said they were poor even before then that being said you know i mentioned he he bounced around a lot so he went to a couple different high schools but he graduated from Ben Franklin High School in Rochester, New York, which again, I'm going to go back to some personal stuff here. My father went there. <laughs> so yeah, I was like, oh, oh nice. that's great. You know. <laughs> in fact, I, I do believe he was one of the first classes. So I was looking at this. He, he, he claimed in his book that he believed he was either the first or second class to graduate. And I was kind of like trying to think about it because it opened in 1928 and he graduated in 1932. But I'm like, no, that would have been the first class. Hmm. Like the first great, yeah, like yeah. freshman year would have been 1928. So, I think he only went to there his senior year, but still he was part of that graduating class okay. of the first class to graduate. No, so sure. He played a lot of sports, but I believe when he was at Franklin, he just managed the sports team and then he um hmm. he would uh he got into doing he basically became the school's art director at well, you know at one point. And he said he had no formal <laughs> training. He took no art classes. I think just because of the doodling he'd been doing, uh, he kind of became the school illustrator. He was the director of the school news, art director of the school newspaper. Yeah. And he, he did work on a yearbook. I think he was the art director for the yearbook as well. And I think he helped out with even the plays and stuff like that. So one of his um, first published uh, work was in the school newspaper. It was uh, He did a comic strip. He got admonished for some really super sexually explicit material. So, kids, plug your ears. You don't <laughs> nice. want to hear this. Super scandalous. He showed a couple kissing.
1: Oh, my God. We might want to bleep that out.
0: I'm clutching my pearls. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I couldn't believe it. I-, I nearly fainted when you said that. I couldn't believe they put it in a school newspaper. Are you kidding me? Oof. So... Um, <laughs> but he ended up doing the artwork for their, their yearbook. He, he said he did a strip for that and several, you know, quote unquote splash pages as he described them. Now this is where he starts getting into, Hey, maybe I can start making a little bit of money on this Two local universities. He doesn't specify which ones uh, paid $10 for the rights to use his artwork in their yearbook. So what, <laughs> what's funny though, is Ben Franklin high school got paid the money And then the teachers and administrators had to take a vote whether or not they keep the money themselves or give the money to Joe Simon. And
1: I Those jerks.
0: I I mean, well, you'll you'll be happy to know that he, he won the vote by one vote. Okay. I know one vote, one teacher did, or administrator did the right thing. <laughs> well, not I mean I'm sure more than yeah. one, but one just the the majority by one <laughs> voted right, and, and that's that's he said his professional career was born. You know, <laughs> man. Uh, from there, he he got noticed by the Chamber of Commerce, who had a local magazine, and they asked him to do some illustrations for it. This was unpaid, but he was you know like I you'll see this he he does a lot of unpaid work, but it's good. It's a way to build your name and your recognition. So, I mean, sure. you get something out of it, at least. So, as I said, he, he was uh, graduated in 1932 and was offered a scholarship to Syracuse University, which, again, uh, my uncle played for the basketball team. <laughs> it's all, this of me, I'm reading this book, <laughs> and I'm like, oh, my God, this is like, I can relate to this guy so much. Yeah. And, he, and this is where I learned, he was saying, like, Syracuse at the time had a limit on Jewish kids. He said a lot of the Jewish kids that he went to school with got, scholarships actually to go to the forestry schooling of syracuse university because they, did, they didn't have the limit okay but despite that he was going to get a scholarship proper you know he was going to be one of the jewish kids let in but right. given that his family couldn't have, even if he got a full right scholarship his family couldn't afford to lose his any income that he was bringing in so that okay. was not in the cards he did not go to he didn't go to college Man. Because I was trying to work this in later, I'll just throw this little neat little story in there. So, Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, because Simon always used to wear a suit, always said he was very—he mm-hmm. was the most educated of them, and he went to college and all this. And <laughs> Simon's like, "I never went to college," <laughs> he said. He he took yeah. a night class doing—you know, where you go in and you and you, you draw people. You know, it's kind of like a sure. you know, continuing education type class at Syracuse. He did it one time. But because he was known, they kind of knew who he was at the time. This is before comics, but they they were, they were aware of him. They asked him to guest speak and do lectures at that class. So he's like, "Yeah, I never went to college, but I taught it." <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, so what do you do when you don't go to college? What's the, what's the next thing you do after you graduate? I get a job. That's exactly it. Mom, mom was like, "Get a job." <laughs> get two. Go get yeah, three. exactly. Oh yeah. What are you lazy? <laughs> 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 yeah. <laughs> what are you, a bum? Well, he, um, he, only, he only answered one ad in, in the paper for a job. And it was for an assistant, assistant art director at the local Hearst newspaper, the Rochester Evening Journal, and their Sunday paper, the Rochester Sunday American, which, which they eventually combined to be the Rochester Journal American. So from, from now on, if I, if I mention it, it'll probably just be the Rochester Journal American. He was hired as the mm. assistant, made $15 a week, $60 a month which the average household at that time was $125 a month. So that's not bad.
1: Yeah, that's a good chunk to be bringing, to, to be adding to the family pot. For sure.
0: I mean, he's a, he's an 18-year-old kid at this point, and he's contributing to hopefully whatever income his parents are bringing in. So, yeah, that's, that's not bad. Yeah. There was this guy named Adolf Edler who kind of took him under his wing, who he was being the assistant for. He taught him how to all sorts of things really related to the newspaper, how to do reproductions, how to do scaling, cropping, how to prepare pages for engraving for eventual print. page layout, retouching, airbrushing. In fact, he goes on and on in the book about this pretty funny story I won't say because it's a long one, about trying to find a part for his original airbrush that he still has from back in these days in like 1932 so it's a pretty funny story if, if you ever get a chance yeah i highly recommend everybody to read the book but for now uh he basically they had to do stuff like the paper had a, a you know talk, again i'm gonna get scandalous again you couldn't show a woman's thigh so if if okay. like if a picture or a drawing came in that showed you know a little bit too much leg well guess what they put a longer skirt or some shorts on her and and they got it ready for <laughs> for, for production yeah, yeah. So he was doing that, and he was learning a lot. I, apparently, the engravers and the, and the photographers were right across the hall. They come over and test their cameras out, take pictures of Joe. He's got a couple photos from back in those days in his book. It's pretty neat stuff. So he went over and get, kind of became friends with them and started learning all the darkroom stuff. So he started learning all about photography. He said he mentioned those guys were lazy, so he actually started picking up a lot of their work. <laughs> so he was just doing their job. <laughs> nice. But again, this is a, unpaid. But he was learning.
1: Yeah. He's an eager young kid. They're they're definitely they're they're pawning off work that they don't have to do, but they'll get paid for. You know.
0: And uh, yeah, exactly. He seems like he's he's willing to do anything, really. So uh, he eventually started doing um, sports and editorial cartoons, political cartoons, courtroom cartoons. He even started getting assignments doing little drawings in the corner of the news, you know, front page, kind of like yeah. the comics always have a little thing in the top left corner by the numbering. Oh sure. Again, they were all unpaid, but he was happy to do it because he got his name published and he's now getting clippings and stuff like that. Eventually, the local out club did these semi-pro boxing matches that he would cover. And they sent him out there the first time and they're like, hey, go cover them. So what they would do, they would send artists out just like they do in courtrooms that won't allow cameras. Even though there was photography right. was a thing, it was cheaper just to send a guy to do drawings. you know. <laughs> so he would go do that. And he was only sent out to do the drawings, but he ended up doing a little write-up. In fact, he tells a story that it was something along the lines of you know, the, one of the, bo- these are all semi-pro, so these all guys had jobs, but, but they were more than amateurs He also, and he said one of the guys was a, like a taxi driver, and he said, oh, you know, Joe Blow gave chief number two a, a, a ride in his taxi, and he gave him a, a black eye for a tip or something like that. You know, just some, some pros <laughs> yeah, that he yeah. kind of slapped together. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Colorful language yeah yeah
0: and you know so he did and, uh, and the editors were like hey you're actually a pretty good writer so then they started sending him to do the <laughs> cartoons and write up in fact he, nice. he made he started yeah. making friends with a lot of these boxers because he was covering them so much one of the boxers uh was a guy named l lederman i don't know if that name sounds familiar to you at all all right and it'll come no. up again so l lederman okay. he was known as the fighting cartoonist because honestly he did the same job <laughs> He used to work at the Rochester Journal American doing the same thing that Simon did at one point. <laughs> okay. Simon tells a story about how every time he went there, Al would bleed on him because he'd get blood everywhere from all the, you know, from from the boxing matches. So he started calling him the bleeding cartoonist. Yeah. <laughs> but Al, Al, they became they were friends for a long time, and he, and Al said, "Hey, I never lost a match though. <laughs> yeah, despite all wow. that uh, bleeding." <laughs> So, you know, I mentioned all this stuff, though, because not only is it a way that Simon started getting more and more recognized for his work, but he also attributes the fact that he was looking at these superheroes in the ring and how their bodies moved, covering these sporting events, helped him with body right. movement and layouts later in, in, in his work. Because he even says, you know, like, he started hanging out with these boxers, a lot of them. He said some were a little too rough for his his liking. He was like, you know, just a, a, a shy kid. And here, some of these guys are a little, you know, rough around the edges. But, but they all were so yeah. fit, and he try and work out with them and stuff like that. So, I mean, it's body composition, all that stuff. He, he was learning just from doing, you know, kind of. It makes, that makes a lot of sense. This is all like training for things to come, and he probably and he had no idea at the time. You know, looking yeah. back, oh, he's yeah. like, hey, it makes sense. So he spent about a total of two years at the Rochester Journal-American, and he said he describes that time as like going to 10 different colleges. He said he came away with a lifetime of knowledge and experience and confidence that he probably would have gotten just, you know, he had hands-on real-life experience instead of going and doing art theory, you know, in, in school. Right. But it was time to, to leave, and he was offered, at age 20 this was, he was $45 a week, plus moving expenses to go to Syracuse, New York, at the Herald in Syracuse, New York. Uh, it was one of the, so he was working for Hearst, which William Randolph Hearst, you know, Citizen Kane guy. <laughs> sure. Uh, yeah, yeah. But now this was a a competitor to her Syracuse American. But he was doing the exact same job, just making a little bit more money. Over time, he just kept doing more and more work, and he basically was the whole art department at one point there at that newspaper. Sure. But and he it was and he was offered jobs doing illustrations for fiction stories that were appearing in the Sunday paper, and, and he was also doing ad work too. But he found it like boring and tedious. The ad work actually <laughs> paid more than his uh, salary. Yeah, it was sure. But I, I, he didn't get to say how much he did, <laughs> but he did enough freelance on that that it was you know just to make some extra money. So I guess around the same time, L. Lederman, there's that name again, was also working in Syracuse at the Syracuse Journal-Telegram, which was the Hearstown paper. They were friendly rivals, you know, because they were competitors, but they were still friends, and they kind of kept in each other's kind of you know world. Uh, but but L. Yeah. left and went on to Buffalo that left an opening for Simon to go back to working for Hearst. <laughs> so in 1937, he made $65 a week. He, uh, he, every time he takes a new job, he gets a raise. <laughs> and now he's working um, yeah. for her, you know, the Hearst uh, company again. However, that was very short-lived because due to the Depression, some of the things going on in Hearst's personal life, he lost a lot of his wealth. His newspaper empire began to yeah. crumble. Uh, so there was these new owners, I guess, news house, new, new house, I think, name of it. Consolidated the three local papers, and that left Simon without a job. You know, if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. Was his motto. So he went on to New York City.
1: (laughs) I was gonna say, like, when you said 1937, I'm like, I know that he's getting close to, to, you know, getting in the mix with with Timely and all that. It's really interesting in such a short time. He'll get into comics so much
0: happened in this short amount of time as i'm reading the book it'll be like chapters on like three months of his life and i'm like it seemed like right. that yeah, so yeah. much happened and it seemed like it was you know yeah, yeah. i'm like oh well it's it's got to be like two years later now he's like no no it was three months later <laughs> yeah yeah you know, but we'll get there being near syracuse he learned about cheap housing near <laughs> in near colleges so first thing he did is he went to columbia university <laughs> And got a line on some cheap housing, so he basically got, stayed at a boarding house in Manhattan, right near Columbia. Went, once he got to, one, you know, once he got settled, he went straight to the Hearst flagship paper, the Journal American, the New York Journal American. Let me specify, because there's lots of Journal Americans, but they didn't have any work for him. However, whoever he interviewed with, the editor referred him to Paramount Pictures. They said, "Look, these guys are, you know, they need some work, and anybody who could do a good job with airbrushing and retouching." could get a job in the in the studio's publicity department. So he did. Simon got hired. Okay. He said he was doing mostly touch-ups on publicity stills. And and I quote, he said, retouched some of the most famous... Oh, oh get ready, Travis. You might want to plug your ears. <laughs> he retouched some of the most famous bosoms in motion pictures. <laughs> he said he did Joan Crawford, Betty Davis, Gloria Swanson, among others, and said... A good bosom man were considered experts and get a lot of work, you know, for doing. It. Wow. And he said, and yeah, he could hold up the sag a sagging bus line with the best of them. <laughs> so I thought that was a funny little. So he did a lot of stuff like that. But again, this is tedious, boring work, as as he was saying. It's not fulfilling, sure. Um, but it was a job. He describes during that time. I guess it was very common in the local papers and studios you know whatever i guess not studios i guess the papers would review portfolios of new hires on wednesdays he wasn't getting Mm -hmm. work he's got good stuff he wasn't getting work he said he was sitting in in one time he saw this veteran artist and it was this guy kid you got your brand new manila folders everything's crisp and clean you gotta spill some coffee on it you gotta wrinkle it up a little bit you know (laughs) you gotta make (laughs) it look like you're not just fresh and new to town he's like but i am (laughs) yeah he goes yeah but you don't want him to know that so he did that, right. and sure enough, he got, his, he, got his, he got hired at 24 years old, and he got hired at uh, McFadden Publications, which was a, a magazine publisher. They published, like, Amazing Stories, the first sci-fi magazine. So he was doing huh. um, spot illustrations, which I guess he would fill the background. Like, if somebody did, like, a, I don't know, you know, a picture of a man and woman standing together, but then, you know, he put, like, a clock in the background, or, you know, just something to fill the page so it mm-hmm. wasn't all greys. Right. You know, again, it's a job, but <laughs> i don't think he was, was was happy with it. Yeah. And he started getting more and more work. Like he did uh he did something for this women's magazine called True Love Stories and then and eventually McFadden's had um uh like a detective magazine, true detective magazine. He did some work for them. Okay. Oh, but but he said it, it was just crazy. Like so back then, especially for this magazine, he couldn't just draw something. So he had to go to a studio. And of course you have to pay for all this, right? So he goes to a studio, everything's already right. set up and I don't know. Let's say you're going to take a picture of a, uh, uh, you know, a a detective or something. So you got a guy that poses as a detective in front of a desk. Whatever it is you're going to draw, you got to take a picture of it. You get the picture printed out. Then you got to draw it. Then you got to, you know, you got to send it to the publisher with the photo attached, or else they won't publish it. It would be ready for engraving for the newspaper. And he's like, "This is crazy. It was like so expensive." It was cheaper to make comics, you know, like, because, <laughs> yeah, you know, there's sure. like this built-in expense just to publicly. He's like, why didn't you just use the photo? It was beyond me, <laughs> which is silly, <laughs> but I'm sure there was a rhyme or reason to it. But his, uh, his boss is at, uh, his name was Harlan Crandall, and I just like to give credit where credit's due because these people are the ones that kind of, like, push Joe in a certain direction to get him to where we want him to be, <laughs> <You know? laughs> right? And he said, he goes, man, you're, he goes, your your speed is is excellent. And he said, there's a new business starting up. It's, they're hiring a lot of artists, and I think you'll be able to handle it. So he he set Simon up actually with uh, Lloyd Jaquette. You know, as okay. we previously mentioned, the guy was running Funny Zinc for this yeah. new famed angle business called Comic Books that Simon knew nothing about. <laughs> Every time that Simon mentioned Lloyd Jaquette, he would always call him Colonel, because apparently that's that huh. must be what they call him. So I didn't know this. I don't know if we did if we talked about this, but you know he was a he was a soldier. Jacat was in World War One, and he actually okay. worked for Major Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson's uh, National Ally publication, which was the precursor to D.C. Yeah, huh? I didn't realize that. Um, that that's kind of where he got to start, no. and also that they it's like Major and Colonel all working together here. <laughs> <laughs> He said, "Yeah." He, so when he when he went to the office, to have a meeting with them. He met Mickey Spillane, who would go on to, okay. you know, do a lot of um, the detective yep, novels, yep. right? Uh, yeah. In fact, he became you know decent friends with him, I believe. Uh, and then he, uh, he he said he saw some guy, and it was Carl Burgos, of course, working on this weird thing called Human <laughs> Torch. And he's like, "Hey," he goes, "Where'd you get up <laughs> with the ideas from this?" And, and he blew him off. He didn't want anything to do with him, <laughs> at least at first. You know. uh, oh. That's what I want to say about jaquettes before I go on further. So apparently, I didn't know this either. He was working for McClure, McClure, uh, McClure Newspaper Syndicate by day and running Funnie's Inc. by night. Okay. And also, Mickey Spillane described Jaquette as a dead ringer for General Douglas MacArthur, corncob pipe, and everything. So <laughs> I, I never knew that, but <laughs> they did show a picture of him, and I'm like, ah, I can see it. I can see it. Huh. You know, if you put a, you put the sunglasses on and the you know the uh, the, the the general's hat, and you you could see it. Anyway, so he got hired uh, to do a new story, as many pages as he want. He just had to do it all himself, and if somebody picked it up, he would get paid. He get paid seven dollars a page. You don't get paid till the issue actually gets published. So that that was interesting. Okay. I didn't know that. I think before going into this book. So so he one of his first work he did it was a western for sure. He thinks it was something called Ranch Dude. It was like a six page story that appeared in Amazing <laughs> um, Amazing Man Comics. But like 90 days passed and he still didn't get his his money. Yeah. What he learned and what I learned in the process is that it could take up to six months sometime to get paid for work that they submitted. Because what had uh-huh. to happen is, you know, Funnies submits it to a, you know, let's say timely. They buy it. It has to go yep. to a, cart- a colorist because I don't think they, not all of them were doing all the coloring. Uh, so so they went to colors sure. and uh, they had to go to the photo engraving to get it ready for printing and then they had to the printer actually had to do its printing and then for national distribution sometimes thirty days alone just for shipping it was oftentimes that they didn't get their money for a long time or they just didn't get their money period <laughs> yeah, that, and yeah that that'll come yeah. up again too but yep. Martin Goodman liked Simon's work I guess I you know I guess he saw it and and asked uh, jaquette, basically said hey. Goodman wants another character just like the Human Torch. So all you have to do is create a character that can set himself on fire. <laughs> and that's where we get the um, uh, fiery mask. Which, you know, yeah. I, I looked a little up about him, but I did not read any issues with him. But the gist of it is, you know, he's he's a physician and a police consultant that gets bathed in the mysterious energy of Green Ray, and he gets strength, and he can shoot eyes, um, basically like twin the power of twin flamethrowers can shoot from his eyes or something like that (laughs) yeah which i'm like that's awesome (laughs) i i think he did um uh, i don't know how he oh he did a 10 page story and it was accepted right away and it was appeared in daring mystery comics number one cover date was january 1940 he did three more fiery mass stories in that same book daring mystery comics but number two he created trojack the tiger man which is basically a one (laughs) of the many tarzan type Kazar, okay. you know, <laughs> yep. rip off the characters. I I, sure. I saw it mentioned somewhere that he used the pseudonym George Sykes, but I don't think he mentioned that in his book. Or maybe he did. Uh, it was uh, I don't I don't know where that that came from, but I have that in my notes.
1: I feel like I've seen Sykes popped up in a couple places, like in the Marvel Unlimited app when it shows you like the last name of whoever worked on a issue. I feel like I've seen Sykes.
0: When I saw that, I was like. Oh, I thought that was his own guy, but <laughs> it could have been. It seems like it was a pseudonym for Simon. Yeah, he he was he was doing a lot of other work, you know, not just for Timely. He was doing, did some Silver Streak comics. He did the cover of the Keen Detective funnies for Silver Streak uh, featuring the Claw. He he created a story for the the Tree Men of Uranus. You know, typical typical fare for back then. You know, <laughs> you know nothing nothing sure. too exciting. But he was always looking for more work. He saw an ad for an artist and editors wanted for a major comic book company. Fox Publications is who created the Blue Beetle. Mystery yep. Men was another thing in Wonder World Comics. So he interviewed with Victor Fox and Robert Farrell. Fer- Robert Farrell was Victor Fox's partner, basically. So this is a funny story. So I, I left this out. When, when S- Simon got to Syracuse, he goes into the office. He hadn't met his bosses yet. And some guy, you know, he introduced himself to some- somebody. He's like, all right, come into my office. And he said, this young kid is taking me into, like, the editor-in-chief's office, and he's, and he sits down behind the mask, and he's like, not mask, he's sitting down behind the desk, and I don't know <laughs> what I'm thinking. He's kind of reviewing Simon's portfolio, and he's giving him a hard time. And come to find out, his name was James Miller, and he was the copy boy, and he was messing with Simon. <laughs> so <laughs> nice. they ended up becoming um, uh, roommates, I think, for a while, and good, you know, good friends. But he was just a little copy boy, you know. <laughs> so at that time, they wanted a reference. Can, they, can anybody give him a reference? So he said, "Yeah, contact my boy. You know, this, contact James Miller, right? <laughs> yeah, back at the Syracuse Herald, and he'll and he'll get you one of the references." You need. So about a week later, Simon gets. Called back in and is like, "Hey, we got this glowing recommendation from one on, on letter, you know, Harold Letterhead, and it's from the one of the top editors, James Miller. <laughs> so you know, yeah. he just totally instead of finding one, he just wrote off glowing recommendation for <laughs> for for Simon, and he got hired. He got hired
1: right then and there. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. That's that's doing your your yeah. buddy a solid. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, he, I think he at first he thought he was thought he was going to get in trouble." And they were like, no, they'd love the fact that, right. oh, this is a glowing letter. We love it. <laughs> so, Simon <yeah. laughs> who? Sounds <it's> great. <laughs> never heard of him. Yeah. I'd never hire that rep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, he was, um, he was. actually became the editor-in-chief at Fox Publications. He was making about $85 a week. So he, had a, he signed a contract. What he learned a short time later is that, because Victor Fox is kind of a shady dude, <laughs> <laughs> he basically screwed over Will Eisner and Jerry Iger. Because I think they were doing mm-hmm. kind of like the same thing like like Funnies was doing for Timely. They were producing stuff for Victor Fox. And then they uh, messed them out of a, you know, a bunch of money. So they just walked. They never got paid. Yeah. So they walked out. So Simon was now left with, a bunch, with basically no staff and only a few rookies. And he just basically had to do like a lot. He had to do all the covers for like the, the Eisner and Iger Studios that were left behind. But he was doing the logos, he was writing copy, he was just really a one-man, do-it-all thing, even though he's the editor-in-chief, he's like, you know, whatever. So he finally gets uh, some relief in, in the winter of 1939 uh, from a new hire, some young kid named Al Harvey. Are you familiar with Al Harvey?
1: Uh, Harvey Comics, yeah.
0: Exactly. <laughs> that, when, as soon as I saw the name, I was like, hey, is that? And I'm sure enough, it was. <laughs> yeah. Simon would later go to work for Al Harvey. And, and for, you know, those who are not in the know... Like us, comic book professionals here, <laughs> right? Well, he was the founder of Harvey Comics, which created the books like Richie Rich and you know stuff like that. Yeah,
1: yeah, they'd become Archie Comics, but they did stuff like Pep Comics was one of their tit- like one of their many titles. And
0: yeah, they did like Baby Huey, Little Audrey, well, Casper, you know, yeah. stuff like that, and, and some military comic strip too that I think was actually for the government, <laughs> but that's that's a different story. Mm. Uh, then Simon Simon got another help from somebody named uh, Francis uh, Francis Heron. He came in with his portfolio, and Simon's like, "You're horrible. You are a terrible illustrator." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, he literally hired. was like, "This sucks." <laughs> exactly. In that you should be ashamed of yourself, how bad you are. Simon was still looking at his portfolio, and he goes like, "But you got some really good ideas in here." And he goes, "Yeah, I'm a great writer." So he gave oh, okay. him an assignment on something called the Flame. And it impressed Simon, and he hired him as the in-house writer. This is another name that will come up later.
1: <laughs> okay.
0: It's a very small world, this early comic book <laughs> industry. Oh, yeah. Francis Heron co-created Captain Marvel Jr., and may or may not have had a hand in creating the Red Skull. Okay. I don't have a lot of detail on that, but we can have a discussion maybe next episode. Well, he did a lot of work for DC later in the in the forties, forties through sixties. So he his his name he's a known quantity within the comic book industry, and he got to start thanks to Joe Simon. Okay. Anyways, while Simon was under contract, he was still doing a bunch of freelance work because all these guys, you know, were just looking for an extra buck. As much as they were yeah. like, you know, continuing to make. More and more money as the years went on. The freelance stuff is no guarantee. I can't. I have to imagine New York City was still expensive to live in back in the day. <laughs> so you know they, they want more money. Uh, so he, he actually created something for Funny Zane called Blue Bolt, picked up by Novelty Press, which is an affiliate of the Saturday Evening Post, and they took the right. name Blue Bolt and put it on the title. Never got paid for that, but he just got his you know his normal page rate. Well, <laughs> and he started doing um, some work for Leo Greenwald's Worth Publishing. So basically, what he started doing is he was working by Fox, at Fox by day, and he was working on a series called Champion C- uh, Comics by night. Basically, he actually got himself his own offices. He 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 went and rented out an office above a mom and pop furniture store, which he said was kind of great because it was you know it was kind of crappy furniture store. As <laughs> he had people come in and join him on his freelance work, he's like, oh, I can go get a chair real cheap, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or a yeah. desk. So Al Harvey would tag along with him a lot of the times. They'd hang out. They were best friends. And it was Al Harvey who introduced Simon to a 22-year-old Jacob Kurtzberg. And the rest is history. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, as I was confused about earlier, Jacob Kurtzberg had a um, a pen name that I think some people recognize a little bit better. I'm sure you'll talk about later. (laughs) (laughs) It might come up. I should maybe wait until you get to this in your Kirby research. But Simon tells it that Al Harvey was saying, like, hey, this kid, you know, Kurtzberg, is really good. He wants to, like, join you, basically. <laughs> you know, like, he, yeah. he sought, you know, Kurtzberg, or Kirby, sought Simon out and said, hey, you know, because, because basically what he was doing. So, he was wasted at the time at Fox. So, this is all the Fox Publishing. They were all working together. Right. He was erasing you know pencil lines off of stuff that's already been inked he's doing whiting out stuff i I, I don't think he was in but he was doing the blue beetle strip i think it's about the only artwork he was doing but the rest of the time he was doing the tedious mundane stuff sure they had a discussion and he said look he said that he said to simon i could use the extra money and simon was like looked at his stuff he's like you're terrific (laughs) he's like yes (laughs) come to my office we'll talk (laughs) you know yeah, and, and that's just what they did. And so he explained, "This is how Simon was working at the time, and eventually, this is how Simon and Kirby would work. If they had an assignment, something that they knew they were like assigned to do and going to get a paid job, they would crank it out. If they had no work coming in, yeah, they would just build an inventory. They would work on ideas. They would make comics. Okay. They would just do. And then they had a yeah. shelf, and they would put it on a shelf. <laughs> and <laughs> that's just how they worked." Side note. The reason he rented these offices that Simon that is is because when Blue Bolt got picked up, like he basically made some money and he was like, "Hey, like I got a thing going on here." He made this thing called Blue Bolt, yeah. And so he, you know, so he's like, I- "I'm gonna start doing this regularly." Right. Their first published work together, and it kind of they're kind of tied actually. So one of them was a cover for Champion Comics number nine, and the other was Blue Bolt number two for their first published Simon and Kirby work. They both came out. In July of nineteen forty, yep. okay. but they sp- and they split the play check. Right, they ended up doing nine issues of Blue Bolt together, and five uh, number five was the first time you would see by Joe Simon and Jack Kirby appearing in a comic book. And so, yeah, they they collaborated on early Timely Comics, uh, Red Raven Comics. I think Simon did Red Raven, but mostly, but then Kirby did something with along with the book. I'm not really yeah. sure exactly because again, this is all kind of from Simon's point of view. But it was mentioned that they kind of worked on it together. It it never even got off the ground. I think Goodman was a little scared about it, so he just canceled it after issue number one and went right
1: to Human Torch Comics (laughs) for number two, yeah. I think some of the concepts that were in that book, and I—it's I, probably Kirby's fault. <laughs> I'll, I'll get into it a little bit, but
0: okay. Oh, I'm curious. Yeah, nice little teaser for later. <laughs> and yeah. you know, and I do realize I'm rambling on and on about uh, Simon, but I was very oh, um, you're good. Very impressed with just how one thing led to another to get him to where we kind of know him from. But I guess Simon and Kirby worked on a character named Black Owl, which was basically a Batman ripoff. Okay. So every once in a while, they would bring on. If they, if they ran into trouble, they would bring on extra people. So one of the guys they brought on was Charles Nicholas. Did he come up in any of your Kirby research
1: at all? Um, I might have read the name, but I don't know that I, you know, went anywhere with it. I only bring this up because I found this, again, he he has so many
0: fascinating stories that kind of are related but unrelated. So, like, so Simon, so they had this guy, this third guy to come in and do whatever they needed, sometimes writing, and it was Charles Nichols. But Simon didn't learn... Till I think it was like the 70s or 80s when he tried to get the rights, or maybe even the 90s, when he tried to get the rights of Captain America back, that he had a court case with Marvel, that he learned that Charles Nichols was actually three different people. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I don't think I know this. I I believe the person that Simon knew as Charles Nichols was actually Charles Nichols Wojcikowski. He was the creator of Blue Beetle. All right. Okay. So he was likely the one that was actually coming in to do the work. However... Simon <laughs> learned, you know, through this court case that Chuck Sidera, he was one of the early artists on Blue Beetle and, and the Blackhawk comic was also using the uh, the name Charles Nichols and Jack Kirby himself is okay. also using it while doing the Blue Beetle
1: comic strip. <laughs> that might be why I, the name sounds yeah, familiar. Yeah, that's what, because well,
0: when I saw that Kirby used it from time to time, I'm like, I wonder if you, if this came up at all either. <laughs> I I believe it was kind of like, hey, here's the guy who created it. So we're all just kind of just using his name, you know?
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. There's one instance where it's kind of like it's a house name and then the the artists rotate. Yeah. It's like it doesn't matter who's working on it this month. You're going to say that you're whatever names going around. I think that's more in the funnies kind of era in the newspaper strips. I don't know that that's as big in the comic book, you know, era.
0: Well, yeah, that's like I see uh, James Patterson is doing all these like kid-teen books and stuff, and I'm like, there's no way James Patterson's actually writing. This. He's got a team of people <laughs> writing him right. and they stamp, slap his name on it. It's that type of thing. Well, but, but it was funny because, you know, when they would bring these – they said they brought in Howard Ferguson to um, to letter. There's a website called the, uh, the Kirby Museum, and there's a whole subsection of the Simon and Kirby collaborations. And one of the guys is, but goes in and, and, like, tries to prove, like, hey, I don't think Kirby actually wrote this particular – drew this particular book. This looks like something Simon did, or huh. or I don't think, you know, Howard Ferguson actually lettered this one. It,
1: this looks like Simon did this. You know, it, it's pretty, pretty neat. Wow. It's like a forensic – artist investigator yeah, or something yeah. like
0: that yeah because you know sometimes these guys they just forget it was you know 100 years ago and you yeah know, and oh yeah and also they were doing so much stuff you know it's <laughs> yeah yeah pushing stuff out we were saying about like the kind of like the house artist type thing even though Kirby was basically the guy because he was the best you know as far as the illustrations, whenever they would bring in extra help or Simon or whatever, and they were working on the same thing, every he said everybody does cross hatching their own way. He said, but they all mm, try, yeah. try to kind of mimic each other. In fact, Simon kind of basically alluded to that he tried to mimic Kirby's kind of style so that it wasn't so jarring between. Sure. <laughs> well, around this time, Victor Fox found out about Blue Bolt and threatened to sue Curtis Publishing, as as we were talking about earlier. <laughs> This was only three months of his life <laughs> that he was working for Fox. But all this stuff happened. <laughs> right. And even Simon says like it felt like yeah. a lifetime while he was working there. Mm. And, and a lot happened in those three months. So basically at that point, Kirby was still working for Fox, but Simon was not. <laughs> he was out. Right. But they kept collaborating on stuff. He said um, Simon would do the layouts. Kirby did the pencils. Simon did most of the writing, but Kirby was good at it too, so he would do some. And they said they were bringing Charles Nichols to write from time to time. Uh, Simon inked, and he said Kirby was too valuable to waste on inking. <laughs> he said he was too too talented. Huh. Which, you know, get ready to bleep this. Language tracers. <laughs> <laughs> your mother's a tracer. A tracer chalk line around your dead f- Language. body. <laughs> as soon as they were talking about that, I'm like, oh, that's that's all I could think of. <laughs> nice. So yeah, when they were, weren't busy, it would just be Simon and Kirby working together. Two two bros doing their thing. And when they were busy, they just basically created an assembly line. With That's where I said they tried to mimic <laughs> each other's styles. But soon after this, they just, you know, they're putting out work. But I think I'll save my further discussions beyond this point because we're getting to a point where Simon and Kirby are getting ready to create one of the most influential characters of all time. And that's a story for another time. So before we get there... <laughs> I want to know more about Kirby, you know, because I didn't do any research about Kirby. Everything I did right. was from a Joe Simon perspective. So anything I learned was from Joe's recollection and Joe's perspective. So, right. Yeah. You know, so what, what, what did you learn about Kirby? I mean, I'm, I'm curious too, if, if some of these stories and timelines line up, you know, cause these are, these are old guys telling old stories, you know? <laughs>
1: Yeah, well we'll have we'll have uh quite a bit of a overlap, yeah, once they once they're like both working in the industry, of course. But uh yeah, my my report, my side of things starts like most stories do, you know, almost uh, 120 years ago around 1900 with a a challenge to a duel between a German aristocrat and an Austrian la- uh, tailor.
0: Already this is way more exciting than how mine started out. <laughs> 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 I should have let you lead. You should have led with this. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, yeah. So this, this tailor had apparently insulted the aristocrat and uh, being an excellent marksman, the German you know, aristocrat challenged the tailor to a duel. Death was a given for the tailor. He, he knew he was going to die. So rather than be killed and leave his wife, uh, a widow, uh, Benjamin and Rosemary Kurtzberg, with the help of some relatives, migrated to the United States. Somewhere around around 1900.
0: So what you're saying is Kirby's father threw away his shot.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, he could have been a contender. So a few years later, Jacob Kurtzberg was born August twenty eighth, 1917, in Lower East Side, Manhattan. Just like the Simon family, you know, money was tight for, for these guys. You know, living space was cramped. A couple of years later, Jacob's little brother came along as soon as jacob was old enough he you know got a paper route and so he he was contributing you know to the household income just like just like simon again just like simon his father benjamin worked for the, in the worked in the garment factories so these paper routes led jacob to doing like messenger type jobs and painting signs for businesses so he's just kind of a a little bit of a jack of all trades. Like, he's, he's doing, you know, anything he can do to make some money. When it came to, to art, though, he was, he was faster than anyone. You know, he was self taught. His, uh, his parents had to ration out, uh, his drawing material like, because he just burned through them too fast. They eventually just had to give him, um, onion skin to draw on. Like, uh, I guess you could buy a sheet of, like, onion skin or, or something oh, like that. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know, but it's cheaper, you know, than, uh, paper or, uh, yeah you know, materials like that so i read at one point he got beaten by the janitor of the building that they lived in because he was just in the hallway just drawing on the floor oh. you know it's like he'll draw on any surface you know you give this kid a a, a lump of uh, charcoal and he'll just start drawing
0: he was he was tagging new york city long before people were tagging you
1: know <laughs> <laughs> right yeah yeah so so once he's a teenager he gets in- involved with something called the BBR which is the Boys' Brotherhood Republic. And it's an organization that was formed to help put restless youths like, on the path to being productive citizens. Because it's kind of this era of these kids are, are forming gangs, you know, and if you don't point them towards the right thing, they're just going to become hoodlums, you know.
0: By chance, do you think Kirby was hanging out on, like, Yancey Street or anything like that?
1: That is definitely where all that comes from where Ben Grimm and his his whole demeanor and his Yancey Street sort of rivalry that is pure Kirby 100%. It's good that he's got this like organization that he's a part of because at the time he was a member of the Suffolk Suffolk Street Gang. You know, and every neighborhood back then like had their own like every street and every neighborhood had their own gangs, kind of like you you were talking about with the the neighborhoods having uh, boxing matches between you know between yeah. neighborhoods. He's still a, a teenager, and like these kids are getting into fights with like the Norfolk Street Gang, which is probably just one street up, you know. Um, but they're like crossing over rooftops to throw bottles and rocks at each other and getting into into you know fights and all kinds of like mayhem.
0: That's insane. I feel like it was fairly common in that era back then. Most of the street gangs yeah. that I'm used to, they snap their fingers and sing songs. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just picturing, uh, I don't know if you watch, uh, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. There's an episode where, or Frank, you know, Danny DeVito gets his old crew back together to form their, their street gang, and they're just like singing doo-wop songs. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Saturday Live did a good thing where Nor McDonald was like the head leader of the Jets, and, and they all start singing and dancing, and he goes... What the hell is that? He goes, I don't know. It was just like he started dancing. It was pretty easy. I picked it up, and then he goes, "Hey, can we figure out how we're going to beat up this other gang, or are we going to dance all day?" <laughs>
1: <laughs> well I don't think that's the type of uh, activity that that Jack was was getting involved in.
0: Something tells me it was a little more intense.
1: A little bit, yeah. like I said, he's in this uh, the Boys Brotherhood Republic. He helps launch a newsletter. They, they sell to their their own families, you know. I think it's just supported by the families of the kids that are involved. But yeah, in, in the BBR, he published his first cartoons. He'd draw whatever cartoons he'd, he'd come up with. And I saw some early sketches of his. He was, you know, drawing people that were in uh, like the serials and just famous faces of the time. So this is uh, from Sean Howell's book, uh, Marvel Comics, The Untold Story. It says that, that Jacob's life was changed one day when he picked up a pulp magazine called uh, Wonder Stories. According to this, it says, you know, he found this book in a rainy gutter and saw an illustration of something called a rocket ship. We'll get there eventually, but Jack Kirby in the 60s is all about the cosmic, weird, you know. It's possible that all that got started, you know, here by just finding this this pulp magazine called Wonder Stories and and reading weird tales of, of space adventures, so.
0: Yeah, because he, he goes on to do quite the volume of space opera-type, you know, stuff, yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, so I found a conflict in relation to young Jacob attending the uh, Pratt Institute, and over in uh, the book Kirby, King of Comics, it says that after quitting high school, he attended Pratt for one day, but quit because his father had lost his job. And then Wikipedia claims that he attended at the age of 14, but quit after one week, saying, I wasn't the kind of student Pratt was looking for. They wanted people who would work on something forever. I didn't want to work on any project forever. I intended to get things done. I tend to believe that that's a real quote from Jack, because he's known for his speed with his art. But I do think it's a little bit more likely that he had started Pratt or went to Pratt after quitting high school. I don't think he went to Pratt as a 14-year-old.
0: Yeah, because again, we, we've talked about, you know, these guys are retelling stuff
1: <laughs> yeah. that
0: may not be as clear in their head or yeah. may be told one version one time, one version another, not not knowing it was being written down for yeah. posterity. Not saying they were out like right. lying because sometimes you just don't remember.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, in, in this instance, I think the people... Writing about Jack or getting something mixed up, something got translated wrong, if you will, over in Wikipedia. I think that's where the conflict comes from. Pratt is more of a college. He was also apparently re- uh, rejected from the Educational Alliance in New York, a- according to Jack, because he drew too fast with charcoal. Could be a similar, you know, thing where they're probably trying to teach you form and, you know, art styles and techniques and, and art history and things like that. And he's probably just like, just let me just, you know, whip out a couple sketches of, you know, this boxer or, or whatever, you know,
0: what I'm gathering from, from this hearing it from, uh, you know, what, my research and then what you're telling me, oh, Kirby and what I already kind of knew how talented he was, like this wasn't honed talent. This was talent, you know, they were born with basically, they honed it themselves with all the practice that they did, but they weren't taught how to do this. This is something that no, came from yeah. them. This is me not being jealous at all right now. Talking, <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so much like you, uh, you talked about with Bill Everett. You know, school and formal education—it it just wasn't in the cards for young Jacob. His father ended up working, or uh, Jacob and his father ended up working together, selling uh, day-old baked goods out of a push cart. Like I think the. The garment thing, I think, just didn't didn't pan out for his father, you know, long term. Uh, but they would push this cart all over Manhattan, which gave him uh, a lot of opportunity to dress up the cart with like, hand-painted cartoons, which led to decorating other vendors' carts and storefronts, again from uh, the King of Comics book says I made more money painting signs than hauling the pushcart around. Either way, it wasn't much.
0: <laughs> well I was saying I bet it wasn't much <laughs> at all.
1: No, yeah. I mean selling you know, selling day old loaves of bread and, and things like that, you know, they're probably getting cents, you know, on their on their, their goods.
0: Yeah, and if he's doing work for other people trying to sell similar stuff. They don't probably have a lot of money to, to, to give him to do the artwork. But what I'm taking from this though yeah. is Jack Kirby is responsible for the food truck craze.
1: <laughs> right. The hipster yeah. food truck.
0: <laughs> Stake me home tonight. You know, stuff like that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. Let's see. So we're in, uh, we're in 1935 now and Jack, as he's now calling himself answered an ad for the Max Fleischer animation studio, uh, Max Fleischer, most people probably think of as the the Superman cartoon. I know I, know I do. <laughs> yeah, so uh, Jack wasn't working on Superman, which, well, at the time, Superman didn't exist. So for Max Fleischer, he's working on entry-level jobs on stuff like uh, Betty Boop and Popeye. Apparently Jack didn't like this kind of work very much because of the repetition and the uncreative nature of what he was doing. So... He would go from opaking cells, which I think is just taking your, your clear glass that these, these cells are drawn on. And I think he's just putting like a, a whitewash on them. Um, so, I mean, just it, it's nothing to do with creativity or, you know, it requires no skill or talent. So he goes from that to doing like cleanup work. Which I think is just erasing pencil lines and and various things like that, or I don't know beyond that. But the uncreative part of art, <laughs> it sounds like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's just the grunt work kind of stuff. Um, he went from cleanup work to assistant animation, but uh, overall, Jack didn't like the atmosphere because he got paid so little to do other people's work. In a factory-like environment, and I think he'd been around his his father's you know factory uh, garment jobs enough to know that that's not the type of like environment he wanted to be in. so he just he just had to uh, just wanted to get out of it. And luckily he got out of Fleischer right before some big animation strike that that happened in I think, like 1936, there was this big animation strike. Um, so he goes to work for a Lincoln features syndicate, and at Lincoln he's drawing all sorts of comic strips and uh political cartoons for various newspapers um Lincoln couldn't land the big newspapers like in bigger cities probably your your guy's Hearst newspapers are probably squeezing out my guy's- little little newspapers sure.
0: <laughs> crush them all <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, the money was of course you know low because they're, they're, it's the smaller fish, you know? Um, uh, but there was lots of work. So between 1936 and 1939, uh, Lincoln was running comic strips such as, uh, the black buccaneer, uh, which is a pirate book by Jack Curtis. Um, there was Bob Brown worked on a sci-fi strip called uh cyclone Burke. And then there was a cartoon called Abdul Jones judging by the name i'm sure it was very politically correct <laughs> you know i'm sure i'm sure it would hold up yeah. today uh that book was uh was by ted gray and then there was like a, a popeye ripoff called uh Socko the sea dog by a man uh simply called teddy do you know what uh all those cartoons and the and those guys have in common uh no <laughs> they're all jack
0: okay <laughs> <laughs> I I should have known.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So he's just, because of his speed and his, you know, just drive to work, you know, he's just doing all these stories, you know, and different styles. Like if you look at the art styles, Black Buccaneer doesn't look like Cyclone Burke. And then, you know, the Popeye ripoff, Socko the Sea Dog is very cartoony. And so is Abdul Jones. Like they're completely different styles. So he's just just putting in his time and and just grinding it out um, for this uh, Lincoln Lincoln Syndicates Lincoln Features Syndicate from King of Comics. Jack said, "I was not only creating characters to draw; I was creating the guys who drew them." So it's kind of a cool way of thinking about like he is probably kind of creating backstories for these people, <laughs> you know, as well. Right, so right. Uh, Jack would go on to work for uh, Eisner and Iger. Some names that you mentioned that they had set up like another comics packager type shop, kind of like we talked about with, uh, funnies. Um, yeah, funnies. Sorry. Thank you. And it sounds like Jack was finally somewhere that felt right. It says that he found a mentor in Will Eisner, who, I mean, was only six months older, but like he looked at Eisner like an older brother, I think. So for Eisner and Iger, Jack did the, uh, character slash creator shuffle again. He created stories such as The Diary of Dr. Hayward by Kurt Davis. <laughs> he did A Wilton of the West by Fred Sandy and The Count of Monte Cristo, again, by Jack Curtis, which was a name he carried over from uh, Lincoln. Um, but again, these are all Jack, you know, at this point, like he's he's creating these stories, or maybe not Coming up with the characters, but uh, he's he's continuing these stories. They're all being done in their own style and and all that. I
0: think in Simon's book, he mentioned when he was going through Kirby's um, uh, portfolio when they were first deciding you know if they're going to work together. I think Jack Curtis came up as one of his pen names that he because he said some of them were yeah were Jack Kirby. One of them was like Jack Kirby. One was like Jack Curtis, you know, and then I think another one was somebody else yeah. Kirby. It wasn't Jack or okay. it was somebody else, so
1: it's probably uh, this Lone Ranger ripoff called Lightning and the Lone Rider by Lance Kirby. Okay, yeah, this one was Lance Kirby. <laughs> he liked that one because it sounded kind of like a cowboy name, oh, you know, oh, yeah, Lance. And uh, then I think that's the first instance of him using the name Kirby. So Jack heard that a guy named Bob Kahn. Someone he once knew from the Eisner Iger days had sold some character called Batman to a Detective Comics, and so Jack tried to. He went over to to the, that same shop and he tried to get work at Detective and was told they weren't looking to to buy anything else. So obviously Bob Kahn changes his name later on to Bob Kane. Um, no mention of of Bill Finger here, no, but I don't uh, think
0: you'll find that. But um, a Batman Batman you say? Yeah, Never yeah. heard of him. No, no. Now, uh, Black Owl. I've heard of him.
1: Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> I've yeah. I just got done watching uh, Black Owl rises and and <laughs> yeah. uh, Black Owl begins that whole trilogy. Yeah, I believe
0: somebody right now is doing Black Owl and Robin. You know, minute by minute. So <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, so at this point, you know, kind of like bombing around town looking for uh, looking for work. You know, this led Jack to. Uh, a place known for being a sweatshop in the comics industry. So Jack goes to work for Victor Fox, <laughs> who Brian mentioned a little bit about. Have you ever heard the legend of Victor Fox, the accountant? <laughs>
0: well, that's the thing. I was, I mean, you, I'll let you get into it a little bit more. But Simon did say there was some, there was some stuff that was going on with Victor Fox where everybody would lose money except for him somehow in a lot of his endeavors, and he may, yeah, and may yeah. not have. I believe he was indicted on some. Uh, mail fraud and all sorts of tax evasion, oh, okay. and all sorts of stuff. So
1: the beginning of the legend goes that Victor Fox was an accountant for uh, Harry Donenfeld. Harry Donenfeld was a publisher of detective and action comics. And so Victor being the accountant saw the numbers when Superman debuted in action comics number one. And according to this, uh, quit his job that day. He saw the numbers, he saw what these comic books were doing, he got out, he rented an office in the same building, and set up shop and began hiring artists at Fox Comics Inc.
0: That, kids, is what we call insider trading. (laughs) (laughs) Is it all true? Maybe. Well, I'll tell you what, I will say that I didn't cover any of this because I was already going long-winded anyways, but Simon talks about some of this in his book as well. Okay. Is it true? I don't know, but we're getting it from two different sources so telling the same story. <laughs> so you know. yeah,
1: yeah. Um, so it it uh, apparently at at Fox, uh, Victor Fox would march up and down the aisles between people's desks, like barking orders uh, at people and just berating them. You know, just really riding them hard. Uh, he declared himself the king of comics, and eventually, like you know. Th- Time would go by, he'd stop arriving at work, you know, at 8 a.m. or whatever, whatever time the day started. Like, he decided, I can roll in at, you know, around 11 o'clock. They can unlock in the morning, they can get themselves set up, you know, they don't need me there that early. Uh, Before Victor would arrive, everyone would take turns stalking up and down the aisles, ranting like Victor. And proclaiming, (laughs) you know, proclaiming themselves, the king of comics just, you know, doing their impressions of, of Victor before he he got to work. Uh, so then years and years later, over at Marvel, uh, Stan Lee decides to give Jack Kirby one of, you know, Stan's famous, you know, jazzy titles, you know, in the, you know, the way he credits people in, in the the comics. And uh, he lands on Jack the King Kirby, uh, to which Jack protests, you know, because of this this history that name has. And his buddy Bill Everett, you know, who's also there at the time, is urging Stan on, like, yeah, yeah, Jack Kirby, or Jack the King Kirby, yeah, (laughs) that's great. You know, just laughing. So from then on, the title King followed Jack wherever he went because they had this uh, in-joke about Victor Fox who would call himself King of Comics because I think he just saw himself as a slave driver kind of situation, you know, like at first, I guess Jack hated it, you know, didn't want to be associated with uh, king, but then I think he just he eventually just you know kind of accepted it. So
0: the title suits Jack Kirby way better.
1: <laughs> First off, you <he> got
0: alliteration, <laughs> yeah, absolutely, <laughs> and, and yeah, he's just he's just that good, you know. <laughs> so yeah, but that's yeah. funny. I didn't know that. Now there's something that did come up in Simon's book. They were talking about basically Victor Fox just ripping off. He had Eisner basically rip off. Um, I think Superman. I think it was what it was, and so there was a whole okay. lawsuit, and they—he was basically instructing Eisner and Iger to basically lie and say that no, no, we were working mm. on this long before this. This is a deep impact uh, uh, Armageddon type thing, you know. Like, oh. and, but but literally, the only thing different was like a red costume versus like a blue. I mean, it was like it was like that wow. much of a ripoff, and they were trying. He he was coaching, you know, Eisner to say or claim certain things, right. And, And uh, I I really don't remember the outcome of that, but that was one of the things that led Eisner and Iger to be like, you know what? Not only are we not getting paid, that was the last straw, but like all this garbage that he was doing, they just left. (laughs) They're like, we're out of here. We're not getting dragged down with you.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, you've kind of covered part of this next little section, you know, but at Fox, this is where Jack meets Joe Simon. And uh, at this time, you know, Simon is editor at Fox, and uh, in charge of the writers and artists, and and apparently became uh, very impressed very quickly at how fast Jack was, like you said. Uh, Jack's speed ended up getting Simon out of a jam, uh, the way my sources you know, tell it. Like, Simon had found out that Jack was moonlighting and taking on jobs outside of Fox. But, of course, Simon couldn't be mad because he, too, was <laughs> freelancing, and, and freelancing on uh, the Blue Bolt. So... You know he he was getting getting behind because of his real job. You know, so Simon asked Kirby to come help out. By issue two, they were working together, but eventually, in issue five, it was signed Joe Simon right, and Jack it was like Kirby. Official, so that's right.
0: <laughs> well, and yeah, that's where I was yeah. I was kind of curious as to what you found because I believe it's in Sean Howe's book. The impression I got was that Simon sought Kirby out because he was impressed by him.
1: Yeah. That's the way that the king of comics also kind of tells it that same way, Um, you know, so, which I think is is easy enough to believe. Like, from from everything I've read, like, it just sounds like everywhere he would go, people were just pretty amazed at how quickly he could knock things out.
0: Yeah, and and as as I say, like, the way kind of Simon kind of framed it is that, you know, L. Harvey was like, hey, I got a kid that you might want to, you know oh kid they were practically the same age you know yeah but he's like I, you know i got this guy you, you want to meet he's really good and then Simon, but then at that point you know kirby was like hey i i hear you're i want in <laughs> i hear you're doing some work on the side yeah <laughs> I, i'd love to make money with you and and that's when sim was like you're really good i i definitely want you a little bit of creative license maybe being told, you know, Uh but it, it's similar. He still, yeah. he still wanted him, but he credits L. Harvey with making the introduction to, to them officially and kind sure. of bringing him over going, Hey, you should talk to Jack. I think he's looking for work.
1: Right. That makes sense. Yeah.
0: But yeah, I also had seen that, that it was really that it was Simon. It was like, Hey Kirby, <laughs> you want to, you want to, <laughs> you want to do some work together there, pal? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Either yeah. way they got together and oh, they went from there.
1: <laughs> yeah uh they went together over uh four timely comics. He's got the new name Jack Kirby and he took that over to Red Raven number 1 like you talked about. And like we talked about a little bit ago that that it just sold sold poorly. I think because there was a something about that issue just just wasn't working like like you said for Martin Goodman, but if you look at what Jack was doing in that issue, he's working on a story called um, Mercury in the 20th Century. And it's this uh, thinly veiled jab at this uh, great society taking down a dictator called Rudolf Hendler.
0: Oh, I wonder who that could be.
1: <laughs> yeah. Also, in the same magazine, he works on a Flash gordon type uh, story called Comet Pierce. So in Comet Pierce, he signs his name Jack Kirby as well. I don't think his name appears anywhere on the uh, the Mercury story, but in that Mercury story, there's a lot of new gods in there. If you look at it, there's a lot of oh, new gods okay. in it. I think so. But somewhere around here, this is where Jack legally changes his name to Jack Kirby. Like he's he's decided on a name, and it's it's Jack Kirby.
0: Uh, I forgot that he did legally change his name to that. And Simon talks in his book about. You know every every legal document he does is Joe Simon. Like he's Joe Simon. He's known as Joe Simon, but at mm-hmm. the same, but his but his yeah. birth certificate is Jaime Simon. And he was like, is this going to cause a problem like with the IRS or or with giving inheritance or anything? <laughs> like when my when I when I pass away, and he had to talk to a lawyer. I I don't know if it's one of his kids was a lawyer or just somebody in the family was a lawyer and they're like, no, no, no. As long as you just have like certain information, you're fine. Like as long as you didn't do anything criminal, <laughs> like it won't be a yeah. problem. Um, but yeah, cause he was like, I just, this never changed it. <laughs> you know, like legally it just stayed the same. Yeah.
1: Hmm. Um, something I didn't know about uh, our friend uh, Martin Goodman from Kirby King of comics in the summer of uh, 1939, Goodman's line of pulps was in trouble with the Federal Trade Commission. Uh, I guess he he snuck in reprints without labeling them as such. So he was just doubling down on material that he'd printed and and used before, but maybe not putting that information on the cover so people would buy it thinking it's brand new material. You know, that's what i what I mm. what it sounds like. False advertising. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, uh, and this is what contributed to him getting into comics because he got in a little bit of trouble with the with the pulps, and so he starts hearing about oh these comics are, are taking off, and pulps weren't selling well at the same time. So that's kind of why he got into comics. I didn't know that at the time of uh, when we were talking about Torch and Namor and and all that.
0: Yeah, that, that didn't come up. Um, it didn't come up in anything that yeah. I heard assignment at least so far, but. I doubt it will considering <laughs> where I left off in the book. He's probably not yeah. going too far back. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting how those guys like kind of just bow- I, like, I knew this, I think about Martin Goodman though. It's like he chased whatever was the latest thing, you know? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Oh, for sure. You know, at, at some point this is where it kind of gets like, it all gets twisted together for me. It's like, you know, Martin Goodman is hiring funnies to put together like, You know, Marvel Comics number one. But then at a certain point, he he takes the middle man out. He hires Joe Simon from Fox, because like like you said, he was only there three months. And then Joe worked out a deal to get Jack on board.
0: I was actually going to bring that up next episode when we talk about Captain America, but we might as well talk about it here. That way we can focus more on the issue. So Joe was actually good friends with Martin's brother, Arthur. Uh, so there's okay. a guy named Arthur Weiss. He was a salesman with compel Photo Engraving. He, you know, he's a salesman. He just he he got in good with mm-hmm. all the publishers because it made sense. Well, he introduced Simon to Arthur Goodman, brother of Martin, and apparently Arthur and uh, and Arthur Goodman that is and and Simon became pretty good friends, and they would, they would go horseback riding a couple times a week at uh, at the Forest mm. Park in Queens, and I guess basically. Huh. Martin, as he said, was getting a little worried that he was becoming too dependent on the package company. He he basically mm. said, no torch, no you know, no submariner. Those are his two best comics. He's they're dead in the water. Yeah. So basically, mm. what happened is when Simon left Fox, Arthur Goodman went to his brother and said, hey, you know, Simon's available uh, because you know he was already familiar yeah. with this work, given that they'd already done some work f- via funnies. And that's exactly it. He was like, "Let's just get rid of the middleman. I want you to come on for me. I'll pay you twelve dollars a page, and instead of paying you on publication, I'll pay you on delivery as well. So he paid more Mm. per page, but it was cheaper in the long run because he didn't have to go through a uh, a middleman. Um, So yeah, and then then, so from there, Simon he started kind of editing. He was basically doing the same thing for funnies that he was doing for you know for funnies he's now doing for Martin Goodman, but he it wasn't a staff position. He was just Still, basically freelance, he was just kind of coming up with new stories, new characters, giving them ideas, and then somebody would take it from there and run with it. Okay, so once Captain America be kind of and we'll get into that later, looked like it was going to take off, he's like, Look, I want you to basically come on, yeah, you know, as a staff position. I think Kirby was still at Fox at the time, so he was hesitant to leave for freelance work. So Simon convinced Martin Goodman to right. bring him on, y- yeah, and they both got staff positions.
1: Yeah, that's what I read. Is he didn't li- he didn't like the idea of of his sole income coming from freelance. You know, he didn't like the there wasn't enough job security. Yeah,
0: it makes sense. I mean, you want a steady paycheck. If you can get extra work for freelance, great. Um, but yeah, they they brought him. on. Yeah. You know, Simon got Kirby uh, a staff position as well. But and and when yeah. that happened, uh, Simon uh, was the first uh, editor of Timely Comics. Like like now, yeah. it's funny. Again, this came up in this court case. They kept trying to say, Well, you said you were the first editor in chief of comics. He like, I never said that. <laughs> He's like, I he goes, Well, it says right here and he goes, Not look what I see, what I, he goes, look what I actually said. And he, and, uh, and he goes, Other people may have called me that and they're wrong. And he goes, I was never editor in chief. <laughs> he goes, I was the only editor huh. and there was nobody else to be chief of. <laughs> he goes, So he was oh, the right. first editor hired, but he was not the editor in chief, not the way he was at Fox <laughs> or or as others would soon be. Sure but he was the only, he goes, I was the only editor. <laughs> but yeah, that, he became officially, you know, the first editor of Timely Comics. Yeah. Yeah, it was interesting. Mm. I thought it was neat though. I didn't, I didn't realize that, you know, because obviously all this stuff is building to, you know, what we know is going to happen, you know, just because of our history of comics. And we, I thought he just did work for Martin Goodman in the past and they were like, yeah, that's great. You know, I'll, I'll give you a shot, kid, uh, to come work for me. And no, yeah. it was, hey, um, I'm desperate. Here's a guy I know does good work. And now my brother just told, who's friends with him tells me he's available so there's you know it's it's again it's a small niche of you know, like this small like circle of people to keep running into each other you know and, and yeah. that's, you know it's like a chain of events that have to happen for, for everything to kind of get into the sacred timeline that we know of
1: so I've got a little bit more about Jack but it, it kind of it, it's it's Centered around like Joe and Jack are working together and they're developing Captain America. Yeah, and I um I I do I do as well. Why don't we save it for the start of our next episode? We'll talk about them developing Captain America and then go into the actual the issue of Captain America number
0: one. Yeah, there you go. We leave them all. This is a two parter. You know, it's a cliffhanger.
1: Yeah. Tune in next time. <laughs> we'll. <laughs> Will the d- dynamic duo create <laughs> Captain America same cap time save cap channel <laughs> <laughs> unless you have any kind of like closing kind of thing for for Joe Simon or like I don't really have anything else on on Jack that I need to get in here, yeah, I mean, I could do this
0: all day, yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, I think it's a good stopping point for for us and for everybody who's listening. And this conversation reminds me of the ending of the Human Torch and Namor, uh, you know, team <laughs> up and fight. What what's going to happen next, folks? And we'll wrap it up in about two minutes. Next episode, <laughs> <laughs> right? So they create Captain
1: America and then they go it's home. On.
0: All right, we're on to the next thing. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, let's uh, let's let's save that conversation for another time. It's it's more relevant. Yeah, I think so. Just to let everybody know, Captain America number one, or is Captain America Comics number one, I guess is what it's officially called. Yeah. The first appearance of Captain America and somebody who may one day go on to be the Winter Soldier. (laughs) Hmm. Quite a few, actually there's a few um, firsts next time that we're going to talk about, so. Yeah. I'm I'm happy to um, put a bow on it here and get right into uh, a discussion about one of our favorite guys.
1: Let's do it. So, yeah. You know, we are Marvel Events Pod on all your social medias. Reach out to us. Let us know what you think. You know, if you have any questions, thoughts, anything we've talked about, feel free to share them. Uh, You can send us an email at give me a second and I will (laughs) pull up our email address.
0: (laughs) I was going to say, I'm not going to bail you out of this one because I'm like, oh, uh, I don't. (laughs) I'm like, did I
1: shorten it to Marvel Events Pod or did I go with the full thing?
0: You know, while Travis does that, if if, if there's anything that maybe we missed, um, any stories that you know of, of any of these creators or characters so far, anything you're looking forward to, we'd love to hear from people.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, shoot those emails over to marveleventspod at gmail.com and we will we'll share them on the show. We'll give you a shout out. We'll, we'll answer your questions or uh, yeah, or just tell us if we got stuff wrong. Uh, but yeah, I think that'll do it for for this one. And uh, yeah, we'll be we'll be back with a little bit more about uh, Joe and Jack working on Captain America and kind of the development of that character. You know, the the fallout from that that issue, and then we'll we'll break down the issue itself and and talk about it. Looking forward to it. Right on.
0: Well, thanks for dropping some knowledge there, Travis. I did appreciate it. <laughs> Likewise, sir. Until next time.
1: Come back next time for the continuing journey
0: with Travis and Brian. Until then, join the conversation over at facebook.com slash groups slash Marvel Events Timeline. On Twitter and Instagram at Marvel Events Pod, or email the show at marveleventspod at gmail.com.